This is a remarkable passage of scripture. It's filled with um, tension and intrigue, with danger. It's filled with mystery. Parts of it are so obscure. Um, It's as obscure for us as it was for Jacob. Who is this man that he's wrestling with? The way the narrator tells the story, we're as in the dark as Jacob is. As I look at this passage, it strikes me that I think the best way to, to wrap our minds around it is to recognize that it's all one story. It's all about Jacob reconciling with Esau. And in the middle of that is this experience, this wrestling match. But then it goes right back to dealing with Esau. It's, chapter 32 is Jacob preparing to come to reconciliation with Esau. Chapter 33 is Jacob actually engaging with Esau and pursuing reconciliation. Now, we've been um, going through Jacob's life over the past several weeks. And this week we get to Genesis 32, Genesis 33, and we see that Jacob is a changed man. He's different than he was when we first encountered him. And there are three primary changes in the life of Jacob that we see in these two chapters. The first change is that Jacob has changed in the way he relates to God. Jacob has changed in the way he relates to God. Earlier, he ignored God. When we looked at Jacob's life several weeks ago, earlier in Jacob's life, he ignored God and God's ways. He ignored God's paths. But now, look at chapter 32, verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of the Lord met him. Where is he going? Well, it tells us back in chapter 31... When Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all of our fathers, and from what was our fathers, he's gained it all. Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor. The Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers, and I will be with you. Suddenly, we see a man who once ignored God in God's ways, in Genesis 32, obeys God. This is a change for Jacob. Now, some of you can relate to this. Some of you have been ignoring God, or there was a time in your life where you ignored God. This is a change. Suddenly, Jacob obeys God. And not only that, that's where the chapter 32 starts. Look where chapter 33 ends. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. What is this? This is worship. Building an altar, that's not all that he did. That's just... One thing he did to tell you everything. What do you build an altar for in this culture at this time to worship? This is a way of saying, Jacob, yeah, he built the altar, but everybody from that culture hearing those words knows that means he worshiped. So here is this guy who once ignored God and God's ways. The first thing we're told about him, he's in an act of obedience. The last thing we're told about him, he's worshiping this God he once ignored. Earlier, Jacob's prime allegiance was to whom? Himself. That's right. Jacob was a man 
supremely self-centered. All of life in Jacob's grip bent around his will and his self. But here we see that Jacob declares allegiance to God. In verse, again, chapter 33, verse 20. He erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. God, the God of Israel. Now, in the middle of the story, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So what does this mean? Jacob is saying, the one true God is now my God. I now declare allegiance to him. This is a big shift in Jacob's life. This is a remarkable shift. He's never identified with God like this. Earlier, if you remember from some of our passages several weeks ago, he would say, the God of my father. Like a lot of people today. God, Christianity, religion, this was something mom and dad did. But up until recently in Jacob's life, it was nothing he embraced for himself. But now he's identifying with the God of his father by saying, that God is my God. Jacob has changed. Earlier, Jacob was a prayerless man. He got in a bind. Jacob figured his way out of it. He didn't pray. This is the first time Jacob prays in Genesis. He took care of business himself. But now here he is. He's in a bind and he prays. And not only does he pray, but he knows how to pray. This prayer is remarkable. This is not the prayer of a novice. This is the prayer of an expert. Now, I've got to stop here and just do a little bit of cultural analysis. Um, We live on this side of romanticism. And romanticism makes us think the opposite of what we should think about this prayer. See, romanticism tells us that the deepest truths come from authentic feelings. And authentic feelings occur in moments of extreme. So this is TV fighting. This is what Phil and Leanne say. TV fighting is when I get so mad, the truth comes out. Does that happen to you, Ernie? When you get really mad, does it help the situation? (laughs) Right? Only on TV, when you get really, really stressed and strained, do you yell and scream and the real truth comes out and the situation moves into healing. That's baloney. That's absolutely not true. See, because we've been raised on Jane Austen and Victor Hugo, some of my favorite authors, Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, I've never read anything like it. There are times when I've read Les Miserables and I think, how could a human being write that? All right, so not everything about romanticism is bad, but this thing is baloney. This idea that the deepest truths are spontaneous acts of passion is a lie. This is not a prayer driven. Its greatness is not because of his extreme fear. Its greatness is because he practiced. You don't pray good in extremity Unless you've practiced. That's like saying, if you really got to wire your house and you really need to do the electrical work, that deep, deep need will produce great electrical work. We call that baloney. No, if you haven't practiced a lot with electricity, no matter how scared you are, you're not going to do great electrical work. 
If you haven't practiced a lot. See, it's our romanticism that causes us to read a great prayer in the midst of fear. And think, oh, look what happens when I really mean it. And I really fear it. No, this is the prayer of a man who's been practicing. And it's not only the prayer of a man who's been practicing. When we look at Jacob's prayer in verses 9 through 12. This is a prayer of man who knows what actually what prayer actually is. Look at this prayer. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please save me. Literally the word is save. Deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Listen, this is a model prayer because he's been practicing, but it's also a model prayer because he knows how prayer works. C.S. Lewis, I love C.S. Lewis's writings, but on prayer he's wrong. He said, we pray because it changes us, not because it changes God. Karl Barth said, no. We pray because God acts differently if we don't pray. You see, Jacob is not praying here because he needs to be changed. He's praying here because his brother, who last had a murderous rage against Jacob, now has 400 men. And throughout the Bible, 400 men is the number of a militia. This is an army coming to destroy a man. Jacob in that moment doesn't feel the need to change. He feels the need for this train that is coming toward him to stop. He prays because he believes God acts differently when we pray than he does when we don't pray. He's praying like Jesus. You see, when I look at the prayer life of Jesus, what I see is that for Jesus, prayer was the battle. For too many of us, prayer is preparation for the battle. We pray these little prayers before tough times, sort of like a prayer before a meal. And then we pray before the meal, and then we get on with the real business of eating. A lot of us in crisis, we pray, God, please help me. And then we go to work, and it's the real work that we do. Now, Jacob believed that the real work was God's. He's going the battle in prayer. Jesus, in the garden, fought the battle, won the battle. Then he stood up. The battle was over. All he had to do was go through with the actions. Jacob knows what prayer is like. How do you pray? Do you pray vigorously? Or do you pray like a functioning deist? Say my prayer, God's going to do what he wants anyway. How are you praying right now for the broken relationships in your life? How are you praying right now over the crises that you're in? Are you praying as if your praying makes a difference? Are you praying as if praying is something you're supposed to do and God's going to do what he does anyway and you've got to get on with your work? Jacob has changed. This is a different man. And like I said, there are three big changes. The first is how he relates to God. 
Apparently over the last 20 years, Jacob has learned to obey. He's learned to worship. He's learned to pray. He's learned that allegiance to God leads to a better life than allegiance to self. The second way that Jacob has changed is in the way he relates to his brother. Verse 3, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. First time in 20 years he made contact. Now, some of you can really understand this. Some of you have had such deep rupture with people that you've even gone 20 years without talking. Right? It, it's, not, it's not at all uncommon for deep rupture to result in decades of estrangement. And after two decades, Jacob reaches out to make contact. He's changed. Before, Jacob didn't show any care or concern for for Esau. Before, in chapter, uh, where where is it that he's selling the birthright? In chapter 27, I'm sorry, chapter 25. Esau comes in one day starving. Verse 30, Genesis 25. Let me have some of that red meat, the stew. I'm exhausted. And Jacob looks at his starving brother and with all the compassion he can muster says, if you sell me your birthright. (laughs) What a jerk. Then Esau says, I don't care. I'm about to die. And then Jacob with great compassion says, swear to me. Right? He's a jerk. But now, suddenly, there's a very different person. Look at chapter 33, verse 10. Jacob said, no, please, he's talking to Esau. If I've found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Suddenly, when Jacob looks at his brother, he sees someone made in the image of God. That's not the Jacob from 20 years ago who looked at his brother and saw someone he despised. It's hard to despise somebody whom you are convinced is made in God's image. He's changed. Before Jacob was rude and callous and proud. Now every message he sends to Esau says what? My Lord, my Lord, I'm your servant. I'm your servant. He owns up to his weakness. Jacob has changed in his whole way of looking at his brother. The third way that Jacob has changed is that his character has changed. Before we think of Jacob in the early part of his life, this is one stingy dude, right? I'm not even going to share my stew with you unless you give me all of your inheritance. That's stingy. Right? If I've ever heard of stingy, that is stingy. But now, did you see all the herds that he sent to Esau? I, I texted Steve Napotnik this week. I said, is there any way you can if, give me a valuation of this and an Elton, you know, coinage? Not counting the camels because there's not a high trade in camels in Elton. $160,000. The camels are worth more than everything else combined. They're worth approximately $400,000. This is over half a million dollars. What happened to stingy Jacob? 
Here's Jacob giving half a million dollars in gifts to this brother that he once wouldn't even share stew with. Lentil stew, for that matter, which Indy thinks is really good. Last time I mocked lentil stew, he rebuked me. So by calling him out now, he'll feel bad for doing it later. See, I have the microphone. It's like a power move there. Look what Jacob prays in chapter 32, verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown me, your servant. For with only my staff I cross this Jordan, and now I've become so great that I can divide into two camps. Here is Jacob, the formerly stingy one who has learned from God's generosity to him how to be generous with others. What does Jacob's name mean? Does anybody remember? Grasping. Remember how Jacob was born? Twins. Him and Esau were twins. Esau was born first, but Jacob was grabbing his heel, holding onto his heel on the way out of the womb. The early part of Jacob's life is a clenched fist, but suddenly we look at Jacob and he's got open hands. His character has changed. Not only has he gone from stingy to generous, he was once a man where his primary characteristic was he was self reliant. He was physically strong. Back in chapter 29, he's at this well and it's covered with a stone. A stone so big, it takes multiple men from the village to move it. But Jacob walks up to it and moves the stone. He's uncommonly physically strong. He's uncommonly clever and resourceful and self-reliant. That's the Jacob we used to know. But suddenly we see a person who is marked not by physical strength. In fact, he loses it, doesn't he? Instead, he's marked by a loss of physical strength and an increase of spiritual strength. His prayer life. His reliance on God. We see it in other ways. We see this physical strength, this, this spiritual strength in chapter 32, verse 11. Please deliver me, God. This is spiritual strength, calling on God to save him. This word, chapter 32, verse 13. He took a present for his brother Esau. In Hebrew, it's minkah. It's a remarkable word. The first time we encounter it in the Bible, minkah, is Cain's offering to God and Abel's offering to God. It's a word that can do double duty. It's either a religious sacrifice or a bribe. And by using that word here, it's a double entendre. What is, what is he doing? Well, he's, he's sending an offering to Esau to atone for his sins, to make up for them. But he's also clever. <laughs> he knows that... If he sends a bribe in advance, like Proverbs says, it could smooth the way. Right? If there's an army marching at you, one move is to pray, another move is to bribe. He does both. Rightly so. Five times he uses this word minka, present, throughout chapter 32 and verse chapter 33. And in chapter 33, in verse 10, notice what it says. When Jacob is finally encountering Esau, he says, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my minka, accept my offering, my bribe, my offering, I'm making up, I'm accept this for me. And then in verse 11, he changes the word. 
except my blessing. And here he uses the word that he stole from Jacob. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm giving all the blessing back to you plus some that I stole from you. This is spiritual strength. Here's a man who's repenting. Making up. He's, he's, he's restoring. He's reconciling. He's making restitution. What's happening here to Jacob? This, this thing that most characterizes Jacob, his self-reliance being changed, this physical strength being changed, the stinginess being changed. What's happening to Jacob? Jacob is becoming his true self. Following God does not erase you. It maximizes you. It leads you to become who you were made to be. Jacob is shedding the false, distorting sides of his character, sides of his personality that have been twisting him into something that is less than fully human. We still see the same Jacob, but it's a Jacob transformed. We still see the cleverness that was once there. In his initial contact with his brother, look, look what he says in chapter 32, verse 4, when he sends his um, messengers ahead to, to Jacob, what is he, to Esau, he says, Thus shall you say to my Lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. Have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in his sight. Notice what he says. I've been out here for 20 years. He doesn't name why. He doesn't, he doesn't bring up his deep betrayal. Instead, he says, I've been out here because I've been becoming successful. Business has kept me out here. And he doesn't refer to Esau as my brother. Esau is the first one of the two to refer to either as a brother. You see, he says, you are my Lord and I'm your servant. This is extremely clever. This is a smart way to engage a 20-year grudge based on good reason. He's still clever. And then notice what he does. After he discovers, um, after he prays, He divides his family into two camps. Why does he do this? He does this because he knows that if if Esau does attack, this is a good defensive move. If they destroy half of the family, maybe the other half will escape. He is still clever. So when when I say that Jacob's changed, it's not into a person you don't recognize. He still has the good things. He still has his cleverness. But what's happened? Instead, his cleverness has been shaped by wisdom. That's the change. And the the way he sends forward this bribe, this offering in herds, in droves. Isn't that clever? Can you imagine your rage and then you get this extravagant gift? Another extravagant gift. Another extravagant gift. And with every extravagant gift, the messenger says, My Lord, Jacob, your, your servant Jacob is behind. With every extravagant gift, he's being told Jacob is humiliated. He's posturing himself in an act of humility. This is, this is so clever. And then at the end, when Esau says, Hey, let's travel together. 
what does is, what is Jacob do? He says no. But he doesn't say no directly. He says no in a very Middle Eastern way. If I find favor with my Lord. Oh, well, then let me just leave some of my soldiers to, to guard you on the way. No, 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 no. If I find favor with my Lord. In a very tactful way, Jacob knows what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. Jacob knows that the way Esau lives and the way he lives are so incompatible that if they were to stay together, it would be corrupting. So in a tactful way, Jacob ensures the continuance of the faith in his family by disengaging. You see, reconciliation doesn't always mean reuniting. And he's clever about that. He knows that. So we see he is still clever, but it's shaped by wisdom. We see that he is still striving. He's still filled with determination. All through this, there is Jacob, the striver, the one who's determined, right? In this wrestling match, all through the night, he wrestles this man. In fact, it says in chapter 33, verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, there is the same strong Jacob who is so fiercely determined, he will not give up. And then, when the, when the man sees that he cannot prevail against him, suddenly he does something supernatural, right? Up until then, he had limited his weakness. He had engaged Jacob as a peer. But suddenly, in a supernatural way, he touches his hip and dislocates it. And Jacob does what? Grabs a hold. Of, you know, if you're in a wrestling match and your hip is out of joint, that's a primary pivot point, right? So what does Jacob do? Grabs a hold of him and refuses to let go. Refuses. This is how strongly. Do any of you have kids like this? Like you could, they could break their hip and they are going to refuse to let go of this thing. Right? You're saying, give me the ball. And they're, no, no, no. And you break their hands and they say, no, no. (laughs) But that's Jacob. Uh, That's Jacob. Refusing. There is that same determination. And we see it in the way he responds to this very dangerous situation. Look at 32 verse 7. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed because there was a militia coming at him. With less men, Abraham routed the five kings we saw a year ago. With less men, Abraham won a war against five kings. This is a terrible situation. When it says that Jacob was... Afraid and greatly distressed, that is a very unique phrase in the Old Testament. The particular language used there, it's hardly ever used. It means terrified. It means holy moly. It means I'm done. It means he's in dire straits. But how does Jacob respond to a deadly situation? He prays, holy cow God, I'm really afraid. Will you save me? And then he gets to work with a very clever gift. This is a determined man. This is a man who in the face of fear is not frozen. And in the face of God's faithfulness is not complacent. You see, that's the problem with some of us. Too often we freeze with fear. Courage doesn't mean you're not afraid. Courage means you're very afraid and you do the right thing anyway. Hollywood courage, baloney, right? Hollywood courage, Sylvester Stallone who's just not afraid of anything. That's not courage. That's, not, that's, that's only in Hollywood. Courage is when you are scared to death 
and you do what's right. Parents, you've got to teach your kids that. Parents, when an adult comes up to your kid and says hi and your kid looks away, they're afraid. But name that for what it is and teach your kid to have courage. You cannot teach your kid to have courage in big things if you won't teach your kid to look an adult in the eye. It starts with all these little things and it keeps going all the way up. And us as adults, you will not have a courage in the big moments if you can't have courage in the small relational moments. But here is Jacob who has courage. Even though he's afraid, he keeps moving forward. Here's another mistake many of us make. Jacob believes in the faithfulness and providence and sovereignty of God. But he still prays vigorously and acts cleverly. See, a lot of us are so Presbyterian, we can't pray like Pentecostals. Some of us have such an emphasis on the sovereignty of God that our prayer life is gutted. So we pray these little prayers. God, will you help me? And then, amen. You know, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And to be lovingly honest with you as your pastor, that's what our prayer time normally sounds like on Sunday morning. We have got to learn how to pray. I'm not saying we've got to get super emotional. I'm saying we've got to plead the case. We've got to remind God of his promises. God said, I promise I will be with you. Notice Jacob's prayer. What does he say? You promised. We've got to talk to God like our children talk to us. But you said. This is a determined man. So we saw that his cleverness gets shaped by wisdom and we see that his determination and striving is now directed toward the things of God. See, he doesn't become any less striving, but now he's whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is lovely, you know, right? Think on these things. Suddenly, that, that part of his personality that drove everybody crazy is not changed entirely. It's just calibrated. So that he strives just as hard after God as he used to strive for himself. Every gift has a shadow side. The first half of Jacob's life is defined by the shadow side of his determination and his cleverness. But at some point he grew. And the gift didn't change. He just got out from the shadow. Now, how in the world has this happened? I mean, don't you want to know? Don't you want to say, goodness, there's so much of me. I mean, so how can, don't you want to be changed as fundamentally as Jacob? Don't you want all the shadow side of God's gifts and strengths in your life? Don't you want to escape them without becoming not yourself? Isn't this precisely the kind of change we all want? We want to become more ourselves and, and get away from the dehumanizing sides of our character that we just can't get away from. How does this happen for, for Jacob? How does he make the change? Well, in a word, God. It's God's work in Jacob's life that changes Jacob in these three ways. In the way he relates to God, in the way he relates to others, in the way he relates to himself. And I see three ways God works in Jacob's life. Three specific things God is doing to change Jacob. Number one, discipline. God disciplined Jacob. The Bible says God disciplines people he loves. 
Hebrews 5, 12, verses 5 through 12. We had it read last week. If God loves you, God disciplines you, and man alive has God disciplined Jacob. Listen, there is a, there is a piece of foolishness that's entered into parenting in our culture that says discipline is not an act of love. The Bible says the exact opposite. It says if you don't discipline your child, you hate your child. And the Bible says the same thing about us. God loves us. And so he disciplines us. And, he, and God's discipline takes the specific form of letting Jacob reap what he sowed. Right? Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Do, do not be, think God will be mocked. Don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatsoever you sow, you will reap. What did Jacob sow? Deceit. And, and, and he sowed so much deceit and so much trickery, what happened? His brother developed a murderous rage that he had to run for his life. And he ran straight into the arms of an arch deceiver, Laban, who for 20 years tricked and deceived Jacob. You know what that is? That's discipline. That's getting what you deserve. That's real life consequences. That is the work of God in Jacob's life. If you are experiencing the consequences of your own sins, that is God's love for you. That's not the only way God works in Jacob's life. Not only through discipline, consequences for his sins, but also through trials. God really works in Jacob's life through trials. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 3 says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. One of the primary ways God works in our life is through trials. Now think about this. God tells Jacob in Genesis 31, go home. So what does Jacob do? He obeys God. And what happens after that? Laban comes charging toward him with an army. Now, can you imagine if you were Jacob? Would you have might, maybe, would you have maybe said to God, wait a minute, I obeyed you. And it got harder. And then as soon as he gets out of hot water with Laban, right? Laban leaves, free from anxiety. He turns around. Here is Esau with an army coming at him. Can't you imagine that Jacob saying, But God, I'm doing what you told me to do and my life is now more in threat than it's ever been. But he doesn't say that. Because Jacob has learned that the trials of God are the blessings of God. A primary way God has worked in Jacob's life for 20 years is through trials. And so now when he gets in this incredible moment, he doesn't interpret obeying God and then it getting tough as some incongruity. He interprets it as walking deeper into the life and will of God. This is one of the ways God is at work in his life. What about you? Are any of you, I mean, don't raise your hand and like admit it, but just, it's a preacher question. You're not supposed to answer. Are any of you in a moment in life where you are trying your hardest to honor God and it's getting worse? What I'm saying to you is that is not a contradiction. James chapter 1 verse 2. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
So you don't look at the trials and say, ooh, I love the pain. No, you look at them and say, this is going to do something in me that's worth it. It's not that you're a sadist. It's that you like the virtue it produces so much. Right? Jesus, it says in, in Philippians, considering the cross in front of him, he saw what it produced. And that's what gave him joy. Trials. The third way I see that God is at work in Jacob's life, and and listen close to this, is God attacks Jacob. It's interesting, this wrestling match, right? Jacob sends his family over. He's by himself. The only other time in Scripture I know of the phrase, he was alone, used other than Adam in the garden. It's an interesting thing. Suddenly he's all alone, this self-reliant man. And look what it says. It's, it's dark, right? And a man, um, what does it say? He was left alone and a man wrestled with him. What is that? Who is it? Where did he come from? It's beautiful literature. We're in the same darkness that Jacob was literally in darkness at night, right? In a day before streetlights, right? Suddenly he's wrestling for his life. Now, at the end, we discover that it was God, right? This beautiful little thing where he wrenches his hip and then Jacob is like, ooh. Wait, we just moved out of the weird realm of wrestling a dude at night by myself when I don't even know what's going on. Into, he just touched my hip and it yanked out a socket. So he grabs a hold of him, right? Jacob's incredible. And he says, give me a blessing. You know why he says that? Suddenly he's like, oh, this is more than just a dude. (laughs) Okay, if there's a great power, I want blessing. The guy says, what's your name? Jacob says his name. Then Jacob asks back, what's your name? And look look what this wrestler says. Why are you asking my name? Here's what I'm convinced he's saying. You know who I am. Why are you asking my name? You've, you've figured it out. Because right after that, Jacob renames the place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face. I love the way the narrator helps us see he's actually wrestling with God at the same way Jacob sees it. But don't miss this. God attacked him. Don't gloss over that. The only people who would gloss over that are wealthy Americans who haven't been attacked by God. The only people who would gloss over that are young people who have not yet been attacked by God. Don't sew God up into this mysterious box that doesn't allow him to be the wrestler. And once you discover he is the wrestler, don't act as if this was not a life-threatening situation because (laughs) Jacob actually says, holy cow. I survived, and I shouldn't have. It's interesting. He renames him to Israel, and Israel means God fights. That's what it literally means. God strives. But then, that's what it literally means. But then when he explains the word, you'll no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and man. He says, look, you're going to be called Israel because God fights, but I want you to have this because I know you also fight. Isn't that the way it is in life? There are these moments in life where God himself is our adversary with his right hand. But with his left hand, he's our help. There's a deep mystery there. But it's one of the ways God works in our lives. 
So several years ago when I had a breakdown, when I was ravaged by a church, when I was healing, I've told you this before, I was one day in this field doing some labor and God said to me, better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. And who is the best friend you will ever have? Christ. Better Christ wounding me than a friend kissing me. And I've said that before, and I know that some of you bristle against that because you do not like to think that God, who is love, that his love can wound. How does it go when your children ask you, don't you love me? Why are you doing this to me? Love can wound. There's a mystery here. But it's a way that God is at work in his life. Now, what is God doing with all of this? Here's what I think the essence of God's work in Jacob's life is. I think he's breaking a wild horse. I was a terrible child. My mom won't talk about my early childhood. When the family sits around, she either will be quiet when they tell stories about my childhood or she cries. That's not a joke. It was, it's that traumatic. I was that terrible. I traumatized my parents. My dad is always, repo- mom and dad always repeat this thing. James Dobson said that their goal with me was to break my will, but not my spirit. Janelle and I are learning the deep truth in that statement. Parents. If you don't break your children's will until they can submit, you're ruining them. There are moments where a parent engages a child and it's going to go for hours. And your job, parents, is to have the stronger will. Obviously, all these other things, true love, but isn't this what God is doing in Jacob's life? Isn't he breaking his will without breaking his spirit? Because we see the same spirit, but we see one that has an ability to yield to God. But let's not only think of others, our children. What about you? What about ourselves, teenagers, young adults, middle-aged, seniors? What about you? Are you allowing God to change you? Are you growing toward health? Are you becoming a better person, more truly yourself? Are you, or are you yielding to the shadow side of your gifts? Are you experiencing reconciliation with others? Are you, like Jacob, wisely pursuing reconciliation? Wisely. Notice, he doesn't reunite with Esau. Reconciliation is very complicated. Some of you are involved in abusive relationships. And what reconciliation means there is very complicated. Are you moving toward health in your own character, in your relationship with others? And most importantly, I'll close by asking you, how is your relationship with God? Are you learning how to pray? Are you practicing Are you disciplining yourself every day to practice prayer? Are you better at your job than you are at praying? If so, it's because you practiced more. Learn from Jacob how to pray. 
Call on God by his insightful names. Talk to God with the thoughts that fill your heart. But don't stop there. Remind God of his role in your life. Fervently ask for his help. Like in verse 11 of chapter 32, appeal to God for mercy. But in chapter, in verse 12, claim his promises. Here's the, here's the amazing thing. We rely on the promises of God by reminding him of those promises in prayer. The concrete way you rely on God's promises is by actually pestering him to keep them in prayer. Relying on promise, that's a lovely, vague, generic idea. No, the way it works out is by prayerfully reminding God of those promises. Learn how to pray. Your relationship with God is the fundamental issue. Do you obey God? Do you worship God? When we gather here as children, teenagers, when, we, when we're singing these songs, are you just sitting there while the adults are singing? Adults, are you just going through the motion? Or are you in an undisciplined way following whatever thought comes up in your mind throughout our prayers and our songs and our preaching and teaching? Are you loving God? Are you worshiping God? Have you consciously determined that you will be most loyal to God above all others? It's interesting to me. Jacob prays in chapter 32, verse 11, deliver me, save me. That word is used only one other time in this story. It's chapter 32, verse 30. After wrestling God, after his hip is wrenched out, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. It's interesting, Jacob prays to be delivered from Esau, but God says, you know what? For you to be delivered from Esau, you've got to be delivered from me first. And I'm a far more dangerous adversary. Listen, if you are not a Christian, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. The most frightful thing in your life pales in comparison to a holy God. He will destroy you. He will consume you in his wrath. But if you would yield to him. When God said, what is your name? And Jacob answered, Jacob. That was his confession. That was his moment. That was when his will broke. Because Jacob means heel grabber. When was the last time Jacob was asked his name? When his father said, Who's in front of me? I can't see. I'm blind. And Jacob lied. And he said, I'm Esau. In that moment, as God is wrestling Jacob and says, what is your name? He is reminding him of all of his deceit. And Jacob owns up to it. Have you done that? Have you owned up to who you are to God? Have you confessed to God your sinfulness? If you will... If you will confess to God and own up to him that you are a sinful person. If you will yield to him, you will be delivered from God. And what happens next in Jacob's life? He's able to reconcile with his brother. The whole story is about reconciling with his brother. But he can't get there until he passes through the wrestling match with God. Some of you, there are all kinds of issues going on in your life. But God is saying, deal with me. 
Jacob prayed, deliver me from my brother. And God said, okay. But to do that, you have to deal with me. And he did. And so many of you have. Are there any of you who haven't? Listen, if this is your first time around this stuff, this can seem like, whoa, that is some hard stuff. That doesn't he? He thought he was being politically incorrect earlier about Tourette's, but now he said, God will kill you in his wrath. I was just letting you know earlier, I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of your opinion. This is a different world than the world out there. And just because our culture says certain things are politically incorrect doesn't in any way shape what we talk about here. Now listen, if, you, if this is new to you, if this is challenging to you, if you want to talk about it, please. Talk. Let's, have, let's have coffee. Let's have a pint at Jack Brown's. Um, I'm preaching now, but if we're face-to-face, I won't preach at you. I'll talk. We can talk. We can have a discussion. And there's lots of other people in the room that can do that too. Let's pray.